This morning we'll resume our way through the Passion Account of Christ. The passage we'll be looking at is Mark 15, verses 16 through 21. It's the last passage before the actual crucifixion of Jesus. The entire second half of Mark's gospel has been building up to this point. The disciples thought this could never never happen to the Lord, yet they're all gone, and, and here Jesus is, condemned and headed to the cross. Last week we finished studying the trial of Jesus. His trial gets a lot of screen time, so to speak. And why is that? Well, while there's much to be learned from the actual death of Christ, there's more to learn or much to learn as well from the events leading up to his death. Certainly through his trial, we we learn the total innocence of Jesus. Both in the Roman trial and the Jewish trial, they found no guilt, no sin in him whatsoever. He truly was the spotless lamb of God. Yeah, he was led to the slaughter nonetheless, so we wonder, how, how could that be? How did that happen? If he was innocent and sinless, how was he condemned to death? And upon studying the first trial before the Jewish authorities, it became clear they held a personal vendetta against him. Jesus was more powerful than them, more prestigious, more popular, had a a greater hold on the people. But they controlled the temple operation. They were the lords of the people. Yet Jesus cleansed the temple, exposed their hypocrisy, rebuked their greed, and that just couldn't stand. Blinded by their own sin, the priests, the elders, the scribes of Israel They ended up condemning to death their own Messiah. It was a turn of events that the Jews at the time, and still today, think it's just impossible, not possible that the Messiah who came for Israel would then be rejected by Israel. It's too hard to believe. But a condemnation by the Jews was not enough. For although they wanted Jesus dead, they couldn't get away with killing him themselves. They needed the Romans to carry out the death penalty. So we then studied the Roman trial of Jesus. This trial was different, though. If you were to ask most people who killed Jesus, they would respond with the Romans. After all, it was the Romans who beat him, put him on the tree. But Scripture makes very clear that Jesus was first and foremost rejected by the Jews, that the religious leaders of Israel were the ones who put him there. That doesn't mean Pilate and the Romans are without guilt, no. But Jesus himself said that those who handed him over to death bear the greater sin. And while it's true that Pilate pulled the trigger of the gun that killed Jesus, so to speak, you zoom out, you find that the Jews were holding a gun to Pilate's head. People are surprised to learn that Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. At first, we learned on four separate occasions, Pilate told the crowd, I found no guilt in this man and he wanted to release him four different times. And don't get me wrong, this is no defense of Pilate. He's still very much guilty because in the end, he sent an innocent man to his death, which is in many ways worse. But overall, it was the Jews who forced Pilate's hand to release Barabbas and condemn Jesus. And as we said last week, Pilate knew that it was over when the Jews cried out in John 19:12. They said, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, for everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. The Jews are basically threatening Pilate to the effect that if he didn't go through and, and kill Jesus, they were going to take this up with Caesar himself. And Pilate could not afford that. He was already skating on thin ice with Caesar. He knew they played his card. They said to him, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate knew he couldn't argue with this. So like verse 15 says in Mark 15, Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. 
And having Jesus scourged, she handed Jesus over to be crucified. There's a sad and shocking irony here. The Jews were so desperate for their Messiah to come to deliver them from the oppression of Caesar. Yet when the Messiah finally comes, they choose Caesar over the Messiah. They claim greater allegiance to Caesar, this detestable, evil, wicked, pagan king who claims to be a divine man instead of Jesus, the pure, righteous, perfect, spotless king of kings who is the true divine man. We know this is how it goes. We know this is part of the plan, but it never ceases to amaze us the level of rejection Jesus faced. But now as we press on in Mark chapter 15, we see Jesus, who is the king, handed over to death. His trial is over. His execution has begun. In the text we see today, we find out how he's treated before he is killed. In all, it's not what people expect of a king. And this is part of the scandal of the cross. If Jesus really was king of the Jews, even king of the kings, how could he let himself be treated like this? Humiliated, tortured, beaten, ultimately killed. What kind of king would endure such treatment? But we discover Jesus, he is indeed the king. But he's unlike any king this world has ever known. After all, his kingdom is not of this world. And we find that as he accepts such contemptuous treatment, his glory is on display all the more as king. Jesus may seem passive in his death, but he's still very much in control. The king knows exactly what he's doing, and he willingly accepts the torment and the shame being heaped upon him. And through this, we learn just what kind of king he is and what he came to do even more. And from this, we find greater and greater hope. So with this in mind this morning, we're just going to go through Mark 15, verses 16 through 21, the final text before his death, and see how Christ, the king, was treated before being enthroned on his cross. We'll start with this. Number one, the king's reception. The king's reception. And look at verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. At this point, the trial of Jesus is over. Pilate has handed him over to be crucified, and now he's in the hands of the Roman soldiers. Jesus is taken inside the praetorium. That just means Pilate's headquarters. Most likely this was in a place called the Antonia Fortress, just outside the temple complex. He was taken into the inner recesses of the fortress to an inner courtyard, and the whole Roman cohort, it says, gathered around. Now, we've seen this same Roman cohort before. These are the same soldiers who went with Judas and the religious leaders the night before, or technically earlier that morning, to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. These soldiers were the ones that arrested him just after midnight, then they delivered him to the house of Caiaphas, and then they went back to the praetorium to spend the night. But here, come morning, they find Jesus back in their custody, so they all gather around to see him. How many are we talking about? Well, a Roman cohort was 600 soldiers, one-tenth of a legion. Now, probably some were out doing other things, other duties, but still, we're talking hundreds of soldiers gathering around Jesus. They all wanted to see the king. 
Of course, not to honor him, but to mock him. They wanted to ridicule this Jewish peasant who thought he could be king of the Jews. To them, this was a pathetic sight. You got Jesus, and, and when they arrested this supposed king, all of his little followers ran away. Pretty pathetic sight. He has no more followers. Then he's rejected and condemned both by the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. Looks like this king has no kingdom. He's not wanted anywhere. And now, to make matters worse, he comes to them just having been scourged. Now, something we actually did not pay attention to much last week is secondly from verse 15, but we'll talk about it here. Look back at verse 15 from, from last week. The Pilate says, Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. A whole world of hurt is bound up in that one word for Jesus, scourged. This is where the physical torture of Jesus really intensifies. Realize, after his arrest, he was beaten up many times. Before Annas, he was slapped in the face. Before Caiaphas, he was blindfolded, spat upon, beaten, and slapped. Before Herod, he was mocked as a king in a robe. And before Pilate, he was further mocked and then flogged. That's all before the scourging. So already before his execution began, he was beaten and bloodied severely. But upon his sentence of death by crucifixion, Pilate finally handed him over. He was given to the Roman soldiers. And he was to be treated as if he were as guilty as Barabbas. And therefore, that included before the cross, which was meant for Barabbas, scourging. This is the worst kind of flogging administered by the Romans. The victim was tied to a post or column, stripped naked, and then whipped on the back over and over. What makes it so bad, though, it's the type of whip they used. Don't think the Indiana Jones whip, the traditional, though that'd be bad enough. Rather, the Romans used an instrument called in Latin a flagellum. There's a wooden handle and attached were several leather strands. Now, at the end of the leather strands, Attached were pieces of bone or lead or bronze. Sometimes they attached metal hooks. And the intent was not to bruise, but to lacerate the victim. The flagellum, also called the scorpion, would rip through flesh, tear through arteries, expose internal organs and bone. The scourging was not designed to kill the victim, although if you did it enough, it would kill the victim. It was fatal in many instances. But the real intent was to quicken death on the cross and to strike absolute fear among the people because they did this in public. They did this in front of everybody to let them know this is what you get when you mess with Rome. How many times was Jesus whipped? You might think 39. He'd be wrong. That's a Jewish thing. That's not a Roman thing. Jewish law prescribed 40 lashes for the condemned criminal. And the, the Jews, they would minister 39 lashes in case they miscounted. They didn't want to go over 40 and thereby break the law. Paul, for example, was lashed 39 times by the Jews on five occasions. But the Jewish lashings paled in comparison to the Roman scourging. There's no comparison. In reality, Jesus was probably whipped far fewer than 39 times because he, he would have died. But nonetheless, sufficient enough 
for his back to be sufficiently striped, flesh torn away, ribs exposed, bleeding profusely. It's no wonder, and we see shortly, he's he's physically unable to carry his cross for long. It makes perfect sense. Just the blood loss enough would have weakened him sufficiently. Altogether, though, when Jesus, he's brought into the praetorium to stand before the Roman soldiers, it would have been a pathetic, laughable sight. Far from the image of a powerful and mighty king, Jesus was abandoned, bloodied, condemned, barely hanging on to life already. And so this king was not received with honor, but with contempt. After this, the Roman soldiers decide this king needs to dress like a king. And so we find number two, the king's wardrobe. The king's wardrobe. Verse 17 says, they dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. As the hundreds of Romans jeered around Jesus, king of the Jews, they felt he needed to dress the part. So first, they dressed him up in a purple robe or cloak. Most likely, this was a cape worn by the Roman soldiers. Their capes were typically scarlet red, but this, this probably was one discarded, left to fade in the sun into more of a purple hue. We don't know for sure, but either way, it was a fitting robe for Christ the King, they thought. And surely he winced in great pain as the cape was draped over his exposed back. But a robe was not enough. This king needs a crown. So they twisted together a crown of thorns. There's countless thorny bushes in Jerusalem, so there's no telling what plant this was. Some suggest it was a dwarf palm tree, which is known for its rather long spikes. Either way, some branches were twisted together in the shape of a crown, made to resemble the laurel wreath crown worn by Caesar himself. Because after all, what kind of a king would Jesus be if he didn't have a crown? Naturally, though, this crown would have added to Christ's agony as the thorns would have dug into his skull. But they still weren't done. According to Matthew's gospel, the soldiers also put a reed into the right hand of Jesus to imitate the royal scepter of Caesar. And now the picture of Christ as king was complete. He had his crown, complete with blood-stained brow. He had his robe, which by then had also become blood-stained, and he had his royal scepter. All that's left is for them to hail this king of the Jews. Number three, the king's acclaim. The king's acclaim, verse 18. And they began to acclaim him. Hail, king of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing down before him. This was a scene of mob mockery and brutality. Dozens, if not hundreds of soldiers in the crowded praetorium took turns one by one acclaiming Jesus as king, king of the Jews. You might wonder, why are they they doing this? This was not normal. They didn't do this to other executed criminals, this mockery. So why are they doing this? What do these Roman soldiers have against Jesus? Well, they've probably heard stories of Jesus. All of Jerusalem was buzzing about Jesus that Passover But they don't know Jesus personally. They don't know who he really is. They don't know his significance. 
All they know is he's a guy who claims to be king of the Jews, and they're, they're probably just venting their pent-up frustration on him. Realize there's no shortage of animosity toward the Jews from the Roman soldiers. The Jewish people, especially in Judea, they fiercely opposed Roman rule. And some of the Jews, they were willing to take up arms against the Romans and resort to bloodshed. We just learned about zealots like Barabbas who would assassinate Romans in the crowd and then hide away back in the crowd. And it's not like the crowd was going to turn them in. And see, from the perspective of the Romans, such tactics produce a great anxiety and animosity toward the Jews, especially the, the rebels. And whenever they caught one of these insurrectionists, they were more than happy to release all that anxiety and animosity on the captive. And that's who they think Jesus is. He's just another crazy Jew claiming to be their Christ king who's riling up the Jews against the Romans, and they're just tired of that. And so this is what they think of people who try and stir up trouble in Rome. Situation reminds me it's not all that different of what American soldiers faced in Afghanistan and Iraq, where you have the local population. Any one of them could be a bomber. You don't know. Dressed as civilians. Could be a woman. Could be a child. The locals want the American soldiers out. Some are willing to kill for it. The rest, they're not going to turn them in. Is that atmosphere, we can understand, would create a lot of fear and anxiety and animosity toward the locals, especially the rebels. And likewise, it's not hard to imagine the Roman soldiers feeling the same way with the Jews. Not to excuse their behavior, just to explain it. Unlike the Jewish leaders, they don't really know who Jesus is, the significance of his claims. They don't, they don't get all that. All they know is this is a guy who was rejected by his own people for claiming to be king of the Jews, so he's got to be really bad. Now they're happy to express the Roman nationalism and contempt for anyone who claims to be king and causes trouble for Rome. So after dressing him up like king, they're going to treat him like king, so to speak, give him the royal treatment. Dozens, if not hundreds of soldiers come up to Jesus. They bow the knee in mock reverence. And then they either spit on him or strike him, or take the reed and hit him over the head with it. Every blow on the head surely digs the crown of thorns deeper. Every strike surely sends shivers of pain throughout his back and body. The verbs used here, are they're in the imperfect, which just meant this went on for a while. It just kept going on and on. They just kept coming up and bowing and beating him. You know, the real emphasis of Christ's treatment leading up to his death it's captured in these verses. It's not actually the physical treatment. It's the mockery. The mockery is where their emphasis lies. In the movies that we see today, in our minds, the physical torture of Jesus stands out. But in the Gospels, the emphasis really falls on the mockery that he received. You know, the physical torture, it's related rather briefly. For example, Mark, he just, he just gives one word to the scourging. He doesn't tell us about it. Nothing more needs to be said. But verse after verse after verse captures and records the mockery, the insults hurled at Jesus. We see this already, and there's more to come. Even as he hangs on the cross, the focus verse after verse is on the insults, the mockery that he receives. The Jews mocked the religious standing of Jesus as a false prophet. The Romans 
mocked the royal status of Jesus as a false king. But you have to see, this is actually part of the hidden irony of Mark's account. Because even in his death and rejection, his tormentors, they can't help but testify of the truth. I mean, from their lips, they call him the Christ, the Son of God, and even the King of the Jews. Yes, we know they do so mockingly, but nonetheless, they are still declaring with their mouth a truth that they don't even know to behold. But nonetheless, they testify of him. The day will come when all those who reject Christ will testify of him again as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and they will bow the knee for real. But for now, here in Mark 15, that's not the time. The time is for Jesus to do what he came to do. The rejected king must take his throne. I like what commentator David Garland says here, quote, he says, while on earth, Jesus was a different type of king. As ruffians anointed him with spit, crowned him with thorns, and prepared to enthrone him on a cross. End quote. Along those lines, next we can point out, number four, the king's throne. The king's throne. In verse 20. It says, after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Like I said, the mockery by the soldiers went on for some time. When they finally grew tired, it was time to finish the job. They stripped the purple robe off of his back. And surely by now the robe had fused to his back, glued on there by all the dried blood. Removing it would have been, I bet, excruciating. But they returned his own garments to him, and they led him away to be crucified. Convicted criminals were placed in the hands of a Roman execution squad, consisted of one centurion and four soldiers. We'll see those guys later. They come back into play later on. For now, though, they lead Jesus out of the city, out of the city gates, because all criminals are crucified outside of the city gates. Now, one thing you might notice here, we've seen it the whole chapter, even back in chapter 14. In these final hours of his life, Jesus, he is led around a whole lot. They just keep leading him from one place to the next. When he's arrested, he is led to stand before the Sanhedrin. He's led before Annas, and they lead him over before Caiaphas. After they condemn him, then off to the Romans he goes. They lead him to Pilate. Before Pilate, he's led to Herod and then led back to Pilate. Finally, Pilate condemns him, hands him over to the soldiers, and now the soldiers lead him to the cross to crucify him. Jesus, he's just led everywhere. He's like a helpless puppy dog just on a leash, led from one stop to the next. He appears weak and powerless. He's not active but passive. What makes this so striking is this is the exact opposite of everything we've come to know about Jesus so far in Mark's gospel. This is, this is not what we're used to. Jesus, he's the most active guy around. I mean, he's a mover and shaker. He's healing people, casting out demons, raising the dead. Jesus speaks, and creation itself responds. This is the one who calmed the storm and walked on water. 
Furthermore, Jesus, he's not a follower. He's a leader. He's like a supreme leader. He just walks up to Peter and Andrew and says, follow me. They drop their nets. They leave everything. They follow him. And so it is with the rest of the disciples. He's not a follower. He's a leader. So what gives? In his final moments, it appears he's no longer leading. Now he's being led about. He's no longer in control. Now he's helpless. He's no longer king. It appears like he's just another condemned criminal. So what's going on? Do you sense, do you feel the discrepancy? That's not what we've come to know about him. What, what is going on? But you have to realize this is very much on purpose in God's plan of redemption. And this is part of what's known as the scandal of the cross. The scandal of the cross. To the world, this is not the picture of a king. When the world thinks of a king, they think of Caesar. Someone who is strong, powerful, mighty, regal, handsome, rich, boastful. Sure, he might be a little cruel, but he gets the job done. He commands an army. He commands respect. Maybe he stepped on a few necks to get to the top, but that's an acceptable price for such high leadership. It's what the world wants and respects in its leaders, this kind of cutthroat mentality. You know, that's what the Jews wanted too. They wanted their Christ king to basically be like Caesar, except on their side. They wanted someone on their side. But this Jesus, he's nothing like they expect from their king. He doesn't act like a king. He doesn't exert his authority over people. He doesn't lord his power over people. He doesn't even serve himself. He serves others. Kings don't serve others. They have butlers for that sort of thing. They're not servants. Jesus isn't boastful, but humble. He's not proud, but meek. He's not rich, but poor. He commands no army, just a a small group of fishermen. He doesn't ride on a mighty steed, but he comes into town on a donkey. This is not the picture of an all-powerful king of kings. Furthermore, when Jesus, the supposed king of the Jews, when he, if he's so powerful, yet he lets himself be mocked and tortured by the Jews and the Romans, when that happens, all thoughts or beliefs that he might be king are gone. Because they reason, how could king of the Jews endure such treatment, such mockery, such shame? How could the king of kings be this humiliated and, and not do something about it? Where is his power? Like they hurl to him on the cross If you're the Christ, and just just come down. If you've got that power, you should be able to save yourself. But to claim that this tortured, bloody, crucified Jesus, that he is the king of the Jews, he's the king of kings, doesn't make any sense. That that type of a claim, it's, it's a scandal. That's a scandalous claim. This is the scandal of the cross. This is precisely what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 1.18 when he said, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who believe, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The whole message of a king who suffered so much contempt and then died the most humiliating death, it's just foolish. It's dumb. To the world, it just sounds dumb. Who would believe that? It runs completely counter to the natural mind. And if you look at the treatment of Jesus with human eyes, 
you too will be scandalized by its foolishness. But if you see who Jesus really is and what he was really doing with eyes of faith, you will see not foolishness, but the wisdom and the power of God. Like it continues in 1 Corinthians 1.22. He says, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Far from foolishness, far from weakness, what Jesus endured in his death, it's actually the wisdom and the power of God. Now you might ask, how? And it's a fair question. How is that true, Paul? You write that? How, how is a tortured, beaten, crucified Jesus, how is that the wisdom and the power of God? Well, let me give you a couple reasons why. For one, through his suffering and death, Jesus was bringing about our salvation. He was bringing about our salvation. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. We have a problem. Our problem is sin and death. Because of our sin, we're spiritually dead before God, and therefore we're cut off from his goodness. But because of his love for us, he sent his son Jesus to die for us, to save us. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In amazing love, God sent his son to die for us sinners. Okay, but how is the death of Jesus going to save us? What's so special about his death? Many verses I could give you, but here's one. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is why he died on a cross, to redeem us, to buy us back. From what? From the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? Death, because we're all violators of the law and under its curse. But Jesus lifted that curse from us by dying in our place. God in his perfect righteousness, he can't just sweep your sins under the rug because he loves you. He cannot do that. But he can accept a sacrifice in your place. It's got to be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect human sacrifice. And there's only one of those, and that's Jesus. He paid in our place. Being God in the flesh, he was able to pay for all of our sins completely. And this is why he came. This is why he accepted and endured his contempt, his torture, and ultimately that death on the tree. Philippians 2.8 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus knew the mission. And he completed the mission. Even if that involved being spit on by the Jews, scourged by the Romans, he embraced the road to Calvary. He despised the shame. And he went through with it 
on purpose, in control, because this was how he was going to buy a bride. He was going to purchase for himself an eternal bride with his own blood, the church. Kings don't do this. They don't sacrifice themselves for others. They let everyone die before they die. But Jesus, he's not just a king. He's king of kings. And he does. This is what makes him all the more glorious. And so, Philippians 2.9 says, For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestows on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So, so behold, if you have eyes to see, this, this is the wisdom and the power of God. This is why we preach Christ crucified. So the world today, still foolishness, still dumb. But by that death, if you believe and place your trust and your hope in him, you see who he is and what he was accomplishing by God's plan. And you believe that you can be saved. You will be saved. Do you believe? I call you to believe today. There's a second reason the suffering and the death of Jesus reveals the wisdom and power of God. Not only in his suffering and death did he provide salvation, he also provided an example. An example. An example of what? Well, for one, an example of how to trust God through unjust suffering. That's something we've already studied back in First Peter. We, we jumped over First Peter and studied that a lot. But in addition, Jesus here, he also gives us an example of leadership. An example of leadership. It may look like Jesus is being led around in his trial, but no, he's still squarely in the driver's seat. He's in control this whole time. Nobody's taking his life. He is giving it up. No one would have any authority over him unless he allowed it. He could stop this at any time. Call down 12 legions of angels, he said. But he willingly and obediently is accepting this treatment and this death. He's, he's in control. Everything he's suffering, it's all according to God's plan. I mean, didn't Jesus himself predict all of this? Everything that was going to happen to him, he predicted entirely. I mean, just, just flip the page back to Mark chapter 10. We were there, well, it's been a while, but Mark chapter 10. He said they will hand him over to the Jews, or rather, he will stand before the Jews in Jerusalem. They will condemn him to death. And then they'll hand him over to the Gentiles in verse 34. Speaking of the Gentiles, he says, Then they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. See, that, that's what we've just read, that he, he predicted this entirely. You see, he's in control. He's still in control, even though suffering so much. This is the plan. And not just being a follower, he's still leading during this time. Though he's being led around, he's still leading. Who's he leading? Us. He's leading us. He's showing us what it means to follow God and lead others. That's what he was doing, following God and leading others. And what does it mean? 
to follow God and to lead others. Well, right after that prediction in Mark 10, he went on to tell the disciples what that leadership is all about, which he was going to model for them at the cross. Look at verse 42 of Mark 10. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was purchasing salvation, but he was also leaving an example, an example of service, sacrificial service, which is leadership. Understand, in his death, Jesus was not a victim. He was a servant, a suffering servant. He was not following. He was leading the way, the way to new life. And we are meant to follow his lead to the cross. For at the cross in him, we have new life. And at the cross through him, we learn what it means to live this new life. Jesus leads us this way through sacrificial service of others in following God. This is our leadership. This is what it means to follow him. This is where he leads us. Jesus leads us down the path in this world of shame, humiliation, rejection, suffering, and persecution. Sounds great. Sounds like a great path to follow. Our only consolation is he went there first. He led the way. And he shows us how to get through to the other side, to glory, eternal glory on the other side. But that's a tough sell. That's a hard sell, isn't it? That's a sell not coming from most pulpits anymore because that sell doesn't really fill the pews. It's not a happy-go-lucky message at first. Instead, the sell today is to follow Jesus or really just just come to church and, and play the part, and you'll have just a nice, happy healthy, wealthy, middle-class suburban life. That's the cell today. That's what, that's what goes out. But look, the true way that Jesus calls us to, he said it's narrow. It's narrow. It's difficult. There are few who find it. But you can be one of the few if you see Christ and savor him himself as the prize of life worth everything. These are the ones who are willing to take up their cross, to follow him, to bear his cross. I know I'm a broken record here, but I can't help it. I just use this verse over and over. It is the theme verse of Mark, so I guess I have a pass. But once again, we're reminded of the true and the costly call of discipleship in Mark 8.34, where he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we're now getting a vision of what that taking up cross means. It's not easy. It's not pleasant. It involves a lot of suffering and shame and scorn and rejection. It's the cost of following a Savior who's hated by the world. We've seen this call pictured and explained in so many ways. But in our text today, there's one last profound picture of this call to true 
discipleship, what it really means to be a Christian. We find a picture highlighting the greatest sense of what it means to follow him. And so we find, lastly, number five, the king's servant. Let's get back to our text in Mark 15. And lastly, number five, the king's servant. When we'll look at one more verse, verse 21. It says, they led him out to crucify him, verse 21. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. This is the wisdom and the power of God to orchestrate for us this living picture of discipleship right in the middle of Christ's literal road to the cross. The Roman custom was to force the criminal to carry his own cross to the place of execution throughout town so everybody could see, again, to strike fear. He didn't carry the whole cross, though, only the cross beam, the horizontal portion. Still, that could weigh upwards of 100 pounds. That's not easy. According to John's gospel, Jesus started to carry his own cross, didn't get far. We know from the the scourging, the blood loss, he was already weak. Certainly no Roman soldier was going to stoop down to help him carry that cross. And no one was going to volunteer for such a humiliating task. So the Romans evoked their privilege, and they pressed some random guy from the crowd into service to make him carry the cross. In this case, the civilian's name was Simon of Cyrene. Given his name Simon, most likely he's a Jew. The city of Cyrene is located on the northern coast of Africa in modern-day Libya. They had a large colony of Jews in that city, and a, a good number of them went to Jerusalem often. Most likely Simon was a Jew on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. But this morning he got caught up in this Roman death march, and he was made to bear the crossbeam of Jesus from Jerusalem to outside the city gates where all criminals died. And that's it. Verse 21, that, that's all it says. And, and you read this, first glance, casual reading, you think, okay, that's it. Nothing more there. Nothing significant about this guy, Simon. Nothing more to the story. He's just another seemingly insignificant secondary character. Just gets one verse, never hear from him ever again. But not so fast. We've been through almost every single verse in the Gospel of Mark so far. And you may not have picked up on this, but Mark very rarely mentions people by name. He leaves most secondary characters nameless. Whenever he calls someone out by name, it's for a reason. There is something there. Furthermore, Simon, he's not just called out. So is his family. He's not just Simon of Cyrene. He's Simon, father of Alexander and Rufus. Who are these guys? We have no idea. But here's the thing. Mark's readers knew them. That much is obvious. I mean, Mark was writing to believers in Rome. And this little note, that's meant for them. So it's obvious they would have known Alexander and Rufus. Which means these two sons were almost certainly members of the Roman church. This fact is seemingly confirmed because Paul, in his letter to the Romans, at the end, he greets a man named Rufus in the Roman church. Almost surely the same guy. So here's what this verse is telling us. 
Yes, you have to read in between the lines a little bit, something we must be very careful of, but I think there's enough clues in Mark to validate this. I believe verse 21 is telling us that Simon of Cyrene became a believer, that he became a follower of Christ. Before that morning, he was not a follower of Christ, but sometime thereafter, seeing Jesus, encountering Jesus, he came to follow him. Did he talk to Jesus or others? We don't know. But after delivering the crossbeam, he likely stuck around and watched Jesus die. And maybe during that time, during those six hours, God evoked a real faith in his heart that this man, Jesus, truly was the Son of God, like the centurion says. Or maybe it happened years later. We, we don't know, but at some point he came to confess Jesus as his Lord and his King. And he went to pass on his faith to his children as well. And here they are. They're in Rome. They receive this letter from Mark, and they get one verse about their dad who carried the crossbeam of Christ. It's such a profound picture. And let me say, I don't think it's a coincidence that his name is Simon. I believe this is God further driving home the point of Simon Peter's failure. In other words, this this should have been Simon Peter. Peter was the disciple who above all said, Jesus, I will follow you to the end. I will die for you. I will never abandon you. So when Jesus was condemned, it should have been Simon Peter who volunteered to carry the cross of Christ. If he were going to go all the way like he said. It should have been Simon Peter, but he, he's gone. He ran away a while ago. He's nowhere to be found. So it's going to take a random passerby. There's no one left to volunteer. And what do you know? The lot falls on a man named Simon. Coincidence? I don't think so. But from this other Simon comes a literal picture of what following Jesus is all about. Picking up your cross, following him. Yes, it's true. At first, Simon was forced to carry the cross of Christ. But later in his life, he made that choice willingly on his own to pick up that cross again. And Simon of Cyrene, I'd say more than anyone, he knew the real cost of following Jesus. He knew what's at stake. When it says deny yourself, he understood the stakes of following Jesus. I mean, Simon was right there. He saw what they did to Jesus. He carried the cross. Simon knew full well that if he followed Jesus later in life, that whole thing, that might happen to him. They might crucify him. Many Christians in Rome, recipients of Mark's gospel, they would later be crucified, thrown to wild animals, lit on fire. Simon of Cyrene, he knew all that. He saw firsthand what they did to Jesus himself. But knowing that, he still followed Christ as his God and King and Lord and Savior. He came to count Christ as more worthy than his own life. And so he he gives us a double picture of discipleship. And so we find it. It's true. Jesus, he really was still leading, even in death. He's showing Simon. He's showing us that the way down is the way up. And that the cross comes before the crown. And the same is still true for us today. We are called to pick up our crosses, our instruments of death, And follow Jesus. 
forsaking our own lives, whatever that might entail, sacrificing so much, all to gain him. And to the world, that still sounds like foolishness. It just doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? It's just dumb. But to those who know him, who see him for who he is and understand what he was doing, it's still the wisdom, the power of God, and it's worth it. We willingly share his cross because we believe, we know, he promised that as you endure, you will likewise share his crown. Like what Paul said about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 7. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul said that right before his death. Those were nearly his final words, and he was beheaded because he followed Jesus. But he still rejoiced. Why? Because this life wasn't his best life. The next one was. And though he shared in Christ's crown of thorns, Being faithful until the end, he knew he was going to share in that crown of righteousness as well. The same goes for you and for me. Do you love his appearing? Do you believe? Do you follow? Will you follow him despite the cost? Do you see in him the wisdom and the power of God? I pray that you do. And if you do, then just, just keep fighting. Keep running your race. Keep going, press on, endure for your crown. For as we too share at times into the crown of thorns, suffering in this life on account of him, which he promised, we can rest assured that one day we too will share in that crown of righteousness, which the Lord promises for all those who've loved his appearing. So let us press on. Let's pray. Christ our King, we bow before you, pressing on. You've called us into a race, a lifelong pursuit of you, that the cost is great our entire lives. In addition, a call to pick up a cross, an instrument of suffering and death, basically to bear your shame, your scorn before a world that does not love you, that does not know you, that wants to take out their rebellion against you on, on us, on your people. This is... Not an easy call. This way is narrow. There are few who would accept such a thing, but Lord, you've called us. You've awakened our hearts. You've opened our eyes to behold the truth of who Jesus is and what he was doing on that cross. And so we see your wisdom and your power. We, we follow. We, we aim to follow you with all of our lives. Be with us. Strengthen us. Encourage us that the road, the narrow way. It's not easy. We need your power in us. We're weak, like we were reflecting this morning, though. Your power is perfected in our weakness, though, Lord. So so sustain us and help us to endure. We know you've promised to do so, so just continue to invigorate us by your spirit to press on, to run this race for ourselves to endure the shame, the cross, the crown of thorns, looking forward to the day when you return and we're with you and we get to wear your crown of righteousness as well forever. It's all from you. It's all for you. It's all to your glory. This is for your glory. We're merely your bride, redeemed by your blood. 
And so we want to sing your praise now and just reflect and rejoice in all you've done for us. We thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.